I wanted to take it back. So much of our culture is pirated and made into mainstream prints. People just throw around their house and call boho, you know, or whatever, you know, it's just, they've taken a lot, like people have taken a lot of our culture and just, you know, ripped it away and watered it down. And I wanted to be as real as possible. And I wanted to cook for our culture as New Orleanian, Black New Orleanians. And that's why I'm very clear. And that's why I have watermelon on the cover because it's the Black New Orleanian experience that I'm inviting you into. Erin Hardnett. And I'm Amber Mitchell. And you're listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. In this season of Tilling the Soil, we will be exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. And today on Tilling the Soil, we speak to Chef Toya Bodie, a New Orleans culinarian and multimedium artist about Black New Orleans foodways and Black encounters with the natural environment. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chef Bodie. I am so excited to talk to you. On Juneteenth, I didn't get to sit in on your talk, so I'm excited that I get, you know, my own personal conversation with you. And I think that our (laughs) audience will be really excited to hear what you have to say, especially those who were not able to join us for Juneteenth. To begin, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to the audience and just give us a little bit of background? I'm a New Orleanian, born and raised. Even both of my parents are born and raised uptown in New Orleans. I'm a culinarian, abstract artist, a poet. I have a deep love for food and not just food, but the language that food speaks. Mm. You know, the stories that meals tell. You know, every time that a plate of food comes across your table, that is literally the, a conversation with ancestors of some sort. The food speaks a language that we hear all the time, you know, and I love getting people to tune into that language to find out and uncover and discover the why, you know, why is this food prepared like this? Why does this food mean so much around this time of the year? You know, for sure. And, and you're doing what you're doing and a legacy of people who did things for others, you know, people who live communally. Yeah. That's, that's something that, that very much speaks to me because I also feel like, A lot of my purpose, a lot of my drive is to like stay in communication, stay in conversation with the past and also have a forward looking gaze to the future. And you mentioned that both of your parents are from Uptown, right? Where are like your, your grandparents? Is everybody from Louisiana? Well, I mean, some are from, yeah, they're all from Louisiana, but You know, my grandparents, I only got to meet one of them. I never had a grandparent experience, really. Even though when I met, I really didn't get to have a a clear relationship with her. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk talk about cooking for the culture. Yeah. Let's talk about it. First of all, let's talk about the title, Cooking for the Culture. Tell me Mm -hmm. about it. How did you come up with that? What, What does it mean to you? What did that title mean to you? With this book and with that that title... I wanted to take it back. So much of our culture is pirated, 
and made into mainstream prints people just throw around their house and call boho, you know, or whatever, you know, it's just, they've taken a lot, like people have taken a lot of our culture and just, you know, ripped it away and watered it down. And I wanted to be as real as possible. And I wanted to cook for our culture as New Orleanian, black New Orleanians. And that's why I'm very clear. And that's why I have watermelon on the cover because it's the black New Orleanian experience that I'm inviting you into. And I wanted the reason why I even, when I thought of the title and the reason why I talk about everything together is because when I get a vision, it drops all at once. So I saw the title, Cooking for the Culture, and I saw the watermelon with my hand. You know, I saw my nails. I saw everything at once. And I knew that I was going to take it all back. You call this stuff hood food, ghetto food, unhealthy food, whatever it is. I'm going to take all that negative you know, spill that's been thrown on top of all of our goodness and our culture to make it not as eccentric as it really is. It's amazing how we do things, you know? And, you know, when I decided that I was going to think about our culture and highlight it, I wanted to show the best parts of it outside of the stuff you see on TV, you know? So I wanted New Orleanians to see that stuff in the book and think, oh my God, I remember when my mom used to wake up and listen to Channel 6. That's a big culture with us, with New Orleanian parents and stuff like that. So a lot of our culture isn't seen, you know? It's just watered down under Lizzie Bonton Roulet, which no one ever says here. You know, like, man, I've never heard anyone say Lizzie Bonton Roulet. You know, like that kind of thing. It's not our real culture. You know, that's why I really wanted to dig into it with that. Like I wanted to have something out there that was real and not watered down or someone from another state who's now an authority in New Orleans for some reason. You know, like that kind of thing. I wanted it to be for us, like for real. That's what I wanted. Yeah. And so much of your book is like you were saying before, is you kind of like reflecting on various experiences, like, Mm -hmm. you know, waking up in the morning and like what food your mom would fix for you before you go to school. Right. I'm wondering if now you can talk a little bit about like these experiences that led you to becoming a chef. I'd like to attribute it to something that I know well, Mama used to hear the story about whenever I would say during interviews, I'd talk about, well, I was punished a good bit of my childhood because of my grades. I never say it as if my mother was a bad person or my parents were bad, right? I mean, I failed every single year and made nothing but D's and F's. You know, I really needed to be in an art school, honestly. But that was the best thing that happened to me because I was always sequestered. So two things brewed my imagination and my ability to cook because I would just be looking at different things, you know, around the house and I'd open up this cookbook and I see, we got this, we got this, we got that. And I'm using this. And that's how I started like really getting into it, you know, and then cooking for cousins when they were over and stuff like that, you know? So because both of my parents were really great cooks, I I can't think of anyone from my childhood that was a man or woman that didn't know how to cook. So it was a culture in our family. So I didn't think it was a gift. So I was always fumbling and torn between acting and poetry and stuff like that and art. And then years pass and I'm about to get married and I get fired from my job at Capital One. 
I had left the art scene completely because I was going through a lot. I was pregnant with my youngest son and it was a lot. And when I got out of all of that, I met my husband and we were about to get married and I got fired from the bank three days or two days before my wedding. And, you know, don't shake your head, girl. I was the worst seller ever. I mean, I mean, girl, like I lost. And that's what I told the lady was about to cry. I was always a good employee, but I mean, I just wasn't built for certain jobs, you know, and but they kind of liked me a lot. So they always wanted to keep me. So she was about to cry because I was like, Miss Karen, I lost fifty thousand dollars and y'all had to stay here to eight o'clock to find me, honey, find the money, honey. I'm not good at this. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised I made it this long. So, you know, I get home and I'm like this and I'm like, I know that I have all these credits from culinary school and I have theater, you know, credits. And I'm like, I wasn't even thinking about school at the time. I was just sitting down waiting for my husband to get home. Well, soon to be husband to get home. And when he saw me, he was like, you know, it's okay. And he said, so what do you think you're going to do? And I said, as soon as we get back from the honeymoon, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Because you know, I'm so used to working. You know, I've been working since 15. And he said, didn't you go to school? And I'm saying that to say that we met and got married within six months. So he didn't know everything. You know, so he's like, didn't you go to school for something? I said, I had all these. I have more credits in culinary. And he said, you know, you probably should go towards culinary since you have more credits. And I was miserable with the idea. I hated the idea. I was crying every day coming home. You know, and I found out it was one semester left I had. And then after that, you know, I just kind of got this win when I graduated. Like, I was so surprised I graduated because it was last minute because I didn't know. I didn't even check up with the verses to know what my credits were. I was just in school again. And it was like, girl, you're supposed to graduate in two weeks. You don't have any other class to take. I was like, ah. you want to know something crazy? I leaped so high that my glasses flew off my face and they cracked. And that's why in the book I say they needed to crack because what I saw was my perspective and view of myself never was the same again. Girl, so after that, you know, I'm like, okay, like I graduated culinary school and I just got the wind again. I said, you know what? Hell's Kitchen has a thing down here. I'm going to go into it, you know, and I'm going to see. And I got pretty far in the process and what that moment was. And I didn't know that until recently, until I was explaining something to my husband. And I said, I never said that story from that angle. And I, now I'm going to leave with that. You know, they went through this process and, you know, it got to the point where they were really trying to get me to show them how confrontational I would be. You know, like, what are you going to do when he tells you off? Because they want to see that for television. And I said, you know, in my mind, I, I told them straight up. I'm trying to have a career in the entertainment business. I am not going to go off on someone who could possibly help me. That was not good. So they had the whole thing, get my ID and everything. And eventually they, you know, they didn't hear back. And I'm like, you got my ID for tickets and everything. And you ain't called me yet. He said, the guy, the producer texted me and said, hey, we decided to go in a different direction. Sorry, hope to work for you in the future soon. Boom. My heart was broken. I was so sad. And when I finally came out of that, I came out the room and told Chris, I'm going to make my own show on YouTube. I'm not waiting for nobody to give me nothing. I'm going to make my own show. And that's how I started getting into the full-fledged chef vibe. And what that moment was with Hell's Kitchen, because I was standing under the breezeway and they 
people, the, the producers would walk past and they did this. And that let me know and that reminded me, Aaron, that I had it. I felt like I lost it through all that heartache I was going through. But that moment, it wasn't for me to go to Hell's Kitchen. It was for me to know that I was stopping the producers in their track and they pulled me out of line. That's why I was so convinced I was going. But from that place of doing the, that made me comfortable enough because I still, even though I graduated, I never called myself a chef. But then I got this job teaching in the city and that's what set it on fire. And that's when I was like, well, shit, it looked like this one I was supposed to be, you know, <laughs> like, and that's what really set it on fire for me to get to this path. And it's always been to, you know, get food and then give people love at the same time and inspire people. So that's really how I got here. Those weird up and down winding roads that I went on to get to this spot right here. Yeah, I see what you mean. And also, like, it feels like that producer was trying to, like, have you be a caricature of Black women. Exactly. He wanted you to be, like, loud and whatever, which, I mean, I'm loud. We're all, a lot of us are loud, but it's like. Yeah, yeah, but, like, for the entertainment of, you know, non-Black people, which is just honestly minstrelsy. It's like they were trying to get you to, like, put on a little minstrel show for the audience. Yeah. My MO is to always represent black women. Right. That's why if you go through every single video of me, that's on the internet from TLC to Hallmark to, to food network, it's always the same vibe, the same consistency. Cause you're not going to get me to make mine look bad. Aaron, you don't know me and you mine. You, you don't, Period. you're not going to make me make mine look bad. No, I'm not. no, and that's that on that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna make me make my mind look bad. I'm not gonna do that. No, Absolutely so I, not. I got hit in the neck on Food Network by a dude that was six feet tall with a sheet pan. We were running full speed and we didn't see each other and went down. Ow! And I had a scar right here that finally went away, and that was even gift on Twitter. Like it was crazy. Like. And and in the interviews, they spent so much time trying to get me to talk trash about him because they cut it. They didn't show that that guy kept stopping working on a fixed time frame to say, hey, how are you feeling right now, though? It was a it was a white guy. They wanted it to look like he was doing this to this black girl. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's not. Yeah. No. And I kept saying that and they never showed my part of the interview saying that. And they never showed him walking over to me over and over again to say, hey, look at me. How you feeling? They wanted to create this rival that wasn't there. But this is the thing. I wasn't just trying to be a chef on television. I always knew and I was given constant reminders from God through people that food is my is my vehicle. Don't get too tied to it. That's why I dropped the name chef. Don't get too tied to it. Food is not, food is just your vehicle. Toya is what people mm. need to experience and learn from so they cannot go through some of the shit you've been through. So be careful with identifying yourself with that title too heavily. Because if it leaves, then what will you be? Mm. If you're not stirring, what will it be? You know, you don't want to get too tied to anything, wife, mother, nothing. You need to just get tied to your own heartbeat. 
in existence. You know what I'm saying? But like, yeah, like I really protected, like I wanted, you know, and I watched, I studied, I studied shows when I wanted, when I knew I was going to be on food television, I took acting classes, all stuff. I invested in myself with theater too. So when it came to this, I'm like, Oh no, I'm going to watch interview styles. And I'm going to notice what the producers are doing. I'm saying, Oh, okay. So they must cut this to do this. They must cut. So I studied that. So when I got on television, when I got, when I did interviews, there was no candidness. Hmm. It's strategic. Cause I know you're chopping. How do you feel, old oh, girl, when I got eliminated? Are your family going to be, are they going to be disappointed? Are they going to be let down? No. Why would you want me to say that? It's amazing. But, you know, I think that that was one of my driving forces, though, to make sure that I represent my people right. Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to yeah. represent right. Like, you're not about to do that. No. Yeah. And no amount of money is worth your integrity. So none, none of that, you know, and that's why I really go as far as I go with the way I look, how I dress and how I don't tone nothing down. I don't change my vernacular. I don't do nothing. I don't code switch. No, because I need black women, black men, black children to know whatever walk of life you're in, that there's a space for you, honey. And there's Mm -hmm. a space just for you that no one can take away. That's why I go as far as I go with the book and stuff like that. When you looking at like, even they were like, girl, why are you about wig heads in the back of the book? Like, why are you standing about wig heads? Why does this need to be a full page cover? Why are you fighting for this to be a full page cover? Because people thinking, even some of my own cringing when I have colorful nails are like, why don't you wear something neutral? Why? Pictures of Africa have bright colors. Why would I be afraid of my tattoos showing all of that? That's why I stood by the wig heads. It's mine. It's ours. No, we could do whatever we want, however we want it. And it's still going to be good. And they're going to pay you too. And they sure will. They will pay you. <laughs> they will. To this point of, you know, being true and honest to like who you are and where you come from. Another thing that I was really kind of struck by on your website was it was talking about like village meals, you know, Uh which is, and the mission of village meals is to make healthy cultural based meals for all. And like this language, like really kind of struck me because, you know, oftentimes black food, you know, Afro Louisianan food, Creole food, whatever you want to call it. It almost feels like the idea of it is that Black food is necessarily mutually exclusive from health. Like it cannot be healthful if you know right. you are cooking and eating right. in your cultural food ways. And, you know, I just wanted to ask you to talk on that a little bit about village meals and like why it is important for you to be creating like these healthy culturally based meals. Like what does that mean? The main issue that people have when they look at our culture, they look at like, oh, you're doing this. And they connected with poverty, connected with grime, they connected with this. And I think a lot of the denouncing, there's a couple different things. Mm, that's such a heavy spoonful of something to give to somebody. Mm. But there's a lot of times we they look, it's been made to look like our food is so unhealthy and so this and so that. Because some of it is, and honestly, some of the way they prepare it is. And I think it's a blatant reminder of why we cook the food we cook. Like, we don't just eat greens because 
we just think, oh, this is a fun green. It's a ritual because it was a part of our ration. The way we cook things was a part of the scraps that was growing. That was, I mean, that was given to us and stuff like that, right? So when you unpack, like people talk about how, you know, these young people are feeding their kids this and feeding their kids this. First of all, shut your damn mouth. You don't know nothing. Of, and, I, and this is from a woman who I was a single mother. So sometimes, and I always have to tell silver, silver spoon fed people this. When you're looking at the culture with poverty, know that there's a lot of stuff that put them there. It's not just them making a decision or having six, eight, nine babies or whatever. It's not just that. It's so much more. You know, do you want to help people or do you want to look like you're helping people? Because the reality of why they eat fast food and why they pick this and why they pick this stuff that's unhealthy and stuff like that, sometimes that's the only thing right that happens in their day. As a single mother, I've had times where I've went to places, you want to go to the local, because you know, here corner, you know, stores and corner stores, they have, they can have nachos, they can have sandwiches, they can, you want to go there and get nachos, get this and get that and whatever, and that's dinner? Hell yeah, because I'm walking around at that time, I remember I was pregnant and on house arrest. Of course, we can have the nachos and the slushy and this baby. That's the one thing I got going right in my life. That's the one yes I can give you. That's the one yes I have power of right now. You got to understand that because that was the whole mission for Village Meals, to acknowledge where they are and give them avenues. You know, we say, well, we can't just throw a bunch of fresh vegetables on a plate. You want to know why? Working mothers, you know, fresh food go, go bad fast. So working mothers, it's not easy for them to always do all these TikTok meals and stuff like that and to follow all of these forums and stuff. Just show them they don't know. All that they know is smothering. They don't know that they can use different fats to substitute and that good food can still have seasoning. My God. You know, and they don't know these things. So that's the mission is towards younger moms, younger men, younger people in the generations, because who don't have the grandmother or village vibe that we have, that well, at least I had. I had a true village. And that's the reason a lot of things have fallen astray because the village was broken apart. It has to be put back together. Do you realize that the first time people encounter black people in the school setting is through like slavery or something? You know, so create that village. There's somebody you could talk to about this. We're going to have doctors that ask a doctor. You could talk to a doctor. Just ask a dad, ask a mom, have different people volunteering and giving these things out so they can feel like they have that support. Because if they don't have the support that helps them through the things that make them want to give a kid hot Cheetos, you're never going to get them to stop. Because it's not just the food, you know, and that whole idea of it being unhealthy. You know, let me tell you something. Some stuff be smothered and, and, and handled a certain way with different fats and stuff like that. But a lot of old, old heads, like people who cook, cook, they use fresh vegetables and stuff. My mama had fresh vegetables and everything and everything. Like everything was made from scratch. We weren't middle class. I want to give people that village. There's so much repairing that has to do within the village that we just have to come together. And it, it doesn't start with food. It starts with the mental health. And then it ends with food. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to create that whole vibe that people can come and have a one-stop shop, you know, and show them like, look, use different fats. Use avocado oil. Use this. 
just because it's healthy does not mean it doesn't have to be seasoned. You know, use different seasoning blends. Let's get adventurous. You know, let's have conversation cards where we talk about things at the table, teach them how to do certain things. It's just so many people want to look like they're helping people versus helping people these days. And it's very scary. And it's sad that that happens. But that was the whole mission around that, giving them, showing them how to eat what they want to eat and what they were brought up eating, but just a different way. Like I gave my mother collards from my cookbook. You know, we was doing the shoots, all the food. I would just pump out to different people. I had a list of people. I'd be like, come pick this up by eight or it's being thrown away. She got my collars and she said, I never thought to cook it like that. Still got the same porky fat taste. It's not riddled with a bunch of stuff. All I did was saute a little ham, a little, not too much. And you saute it and you keep the bite. You know, it's just that people just don't. They don't know. And honestly, some of that food is so comforting to them is because they're getting nurtured from their ancestors while they're eating it. Man, like, you know, it's such a history lesson with food. Yeah, for sure. And also just like this idea of a village and communal support. Like, honestly, you don't even have to go all the way back to Africa to find that because it's like right. the idea that enslaved people did not have community is incorrect. Like the idea that like there was no culture in enslaved populations is incorrect. And it's like, where did this food come from? It's not the food as we eat it today is not what people were eating in Africa, because frankly, a lot of the fruits and vegetables and, you know, pork also wasn't in Africa. Right. But it's like specifically here in Louisiana, these are products of enslaved and formerly enslaved people. right? Right. And like people did and still do live in community in different parts of Louisiana. I think that that's like a really important thing for you to highlight with village meals. And like one thing that I think about a lot with, you know, like black food culture is, and this is kind of getting at the theme of, of the podcast this season with the environment is black people used to have gardens, right? You know, everybody used to have access to like a garden and fresh food regardless mm. of the quantity of money that you had. Like my family's from like a more rural part of Louisiana and like my mother grew up and, you know, they, they would like slaughter the pigs mm-hmm. on the farm, oh. you know. I mean, poverty in the rural areas looks different than poverty in the city. Very much so. It does. Because it's like, it means that like, you know, yeah. maybe you got a garden, maybe you have like a family, extended family that has like farm animals. But like, also, maybe you don't have access to to schools, you know, maybe you don't have access to, you know, like a public library. And so like, it does look very different. But like, regardless of where you are, a village is very important. And especially like maintaining your food ways and like supporting mental health, all of these things are important just to like help us like heal communally, because healing doesn't happen in isolation, like you do need a community to support you. That's why I said when they when we originally started talking about it, when it came down to food, I was like, look, I know it looks like I'm trying to go this other route, but in order to talk to them about what they eat every day, you mm-hmm. got to be able to relate to them in some other area. Mm-hmm. So you got to meet them where you go from it. Mm. You got to meet them where the pieces are. Help them pick those pieces together and then say, what you eating tonight? Mm. Honestly, that sounds a lot like what church is supposed to be, you know, meeting people where they are, you know, bringing 
what they need to them where they are. Mm-hmm. That's why I said so much in the book here. And food is a conversation sometimes. That's why in the book I talk about my mama looked at me. She wasn't talking to me really, you know, because she was hurt that I was pregnant. You know, mm-hmm. you do all this work and you think you're going to get something better for your child and she choose something else that's painful. And she didn't say much to me. She looked at me at the counter. Then she started cooking. She made grits and she made fried liver. You know why? She knew I needed something. She looked me in my eyes and saw my eyes were dark. That baby was pulling everything from me. So randomly, she would do stuff like, give me a bowl of muffin greens. Give me a bowl of this. Make me make this. Here, eat this oatmeal. I realized the words that I was looking for from her were edible. Come on. Look, we got to sit with that one for a minute. The words that you were looking for from her were edible. Our season's theme is on the environment, but I do actually feel like we've talked a lot about that, even though we haven't necessarily addressed it directly, because like you were saying, you're in a city and like a city, the environment means something different than it does out here in Wallace, Louisiana. It means something very different. It means corner stores. It also means, you know, increased rates of asthma, like you were saying. And I thank you for that. Thank you so much for reminding us about that aspect of what the environment means, right? Yeah. Man, even when you said that, I thought about concrete. Like we have so much. I was explaining to my cousins about the my husband's their annual camping trip. And, I, and they said, I could never be in the heat. And this is all city people talking. I could never be in a heat like that, child. And I was like, you know what he told me? I said, he, you know, my husband was a Marine, so he spent time like doing worldly things. And he mm-hmm. said, and he said that I remember last time that they it's hot here in New Orleans, but where he goes like two hours away, it's cold. And he said it was so cold that he had to go to the store and spend crazy money buying different camping stuff in thermals because it was that cold and it was we were sweating here. It's the difference. We're in a concrete city. And concrete holds heat. It does. Everything like cities are hotter than rural areas. That thing about the concrete, that's a whole nother ballgame. That that city life, the environment is a lot different. So let me ask you, um, what were some like memories and experiences that you have from your childhood or like maybe now that shaped the way that you understand the environment? Oh, my daddy. My daddy has a green thumb. I don't know if you've ever been on my social media. I have a ton of every big window. I have no curtains that I have no curtains in my house that can actually close because I have plants in front of them. My sister said, y'all need to be careful because y'all joke is going to be put out soon because y'all ain't going to have space for nothing else. But like, so like our curtains are always open because I have so many plants because that is what I always had some living elements around me. My daddy would do artwork. And he would find driftwood from the river and he would paint it and do different things and put it on the wall. We had fish tanks that had fish in it that were exotic. Like we had an eel once, like it was crazy. He always had weird fish, like African fish, like different things he would just have. We had pencil cactuses, stuff you only saw plastic versions of. Like we had, like my daddy in front of the house is like, we always say he picks plants that really need to be in the Amazon and he puts them 
like in all the streets. Like it's crazy. I'm like, Daddy, there's no way the tip of this plant should be like this wide. Like, and the tip of it is like a point. It's like a sword. There were so many things. My daddy respected elements a lot. He even built a fireplace. That was the first time we saw a fireplace. You know, he built one with him and his friend got in and he could build things and they put a fireplace in the house. So the fact that we got to see fire, like just stuff like that, there was just an unspoken deep respect for nature in a way, even though we weren't like outside kind of people. Both my parents are city, you know, so they still had that. And I think having that connection inside of the house and is why I believe in having so many plants and stuff. I, I want my kids to always grow up around living things. So that connection with nature is just life. It reminds you that there's so much more life that exists outside of you. My daddy would, sometimes if he saw a plant he liked that we was walking somewhere, he would rip a piece of it off and then grow it in the house. From something so tiny, something so beautiful is now decorating our house. Like that, that kind of stuff, like I told my parents, my mom was like, I never thought about it. Like they literally had no clue what they were teaching us. No clue. They just was, we like plants. You know, or days that I'm overwhelmed. And sometimes I feel when you feel overwhelmed, I feel so big. I feel like I can't fit in this house. I, I go sit outside and I put my feet in the grass and I put my feet on the concrete so I can feel the rumble in them cars passing. So I could know that, damn, the world is so much bigger than me. You start thinking about stuff like that and you start thinking about, you know, how big things are. Or like our family trip, our, our last big family trip. We went to uh, Blue Ridge Mountain Mountains in Georgia. Girl, mm, I'm a city girl. That caught me off guard, girl. That was a lot. That was a lot. Like the nighttime is different. Not you walking down a mountain and a deer is just, no, what? You know, that was a lot for me, right? I have some very fond memories of Blue Ridge Mountains, actually. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I grew up in Georgia. So my family's from Louisiana. Oh, really? so, um, yeah, my family's from Louisiana, but I grew up in Marietta, Georgia. Um, so, you know, sometimes we would go on church trips to like Blue Ridge Mountains or like um, go whitewater rafting for like some kind of group activity in the Blue Ridge Mountains. But also like even having had those experiences, like I still until like my adult life hadn't really felt that comfortable in, you know, the natural environment. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like outside of like, you know, the cities or the suburbs, like outside of that, it's like, you know, it, it can get a little bit overwhelming because, you know, the, the world, the earth is just so big. Right. And whenever I moved up to Connecticut for divinity school, I had the sudden urge because I was in Connecticut and I was just like, I have never gone camping. I've never gone tent camping. I need to do this for myself because I do. I love plants also. Like I have so many plants in my house. It's more plants than humans. And during the pandemic, I would not talk to a person, but I would talk to my plants, you know, in a day. So I was like, okay, I need to go camping. So me and my boyfriend, we decided to go camping. And one of the places that, that we camped was in Vermont. I don't remember the, the state park, but it was a state park. And that was the first time that I saw the Big Dipper in person. And when I tell you, if you ever get the opportunity to like go out somewhere where there is no light pollution and you can see the stars, do it. Because it's like both overwhelming and it's like 
this intensely spiritual experience because you you're looking up at the Big Dipper and you're like, these are the same stars that led people to freedom. Yes. Just having the opportunity to see that it's just so big, like the gratitude that I felt for those stars. Mm-hmm. I just can't even explain it. Mm-hmm. It's that beautiful. I think for some people, it could be scary. I think it would depend like other people outside of us talking, you know, like, like it would, the whole idea of it is, can be frightening, but I think that's the best thing. That's the best thing for you to get out there. And even though I joke and say, mm, baby, I am completely a city girl. You hear me? Like, give me a seat, run me my chair. You know, I am beyond the age of sitting, standing, sweating. I can't, I just don't, that's just not how I am. But in those times when I'm overwhelmed, I need nature. The downstairs theme of my house is primarily there's like patterns and a lot of earthy stuff. There's brick, there's wood, there's wood flooring. I'm comforted by like, I got sticks in a vase. Like that makes me feel good. You know, like those things you needed. You need to feel tiny to remind yourself that everything is bigger than you. And I'm saying all of that about the mountains and stuff, but girl, I plan that trip. I plan on a family trip. Like even they were like, why did you? Y'all like this stuff, you know, <laughs> this stuff that, you know, but I really didn't, I really did enjoy it. You know, there were, you know, a few weird moments, but I did, I did enjoy it. I love, oh, I feel so safe. It feels so good to just put your feet on the ground. I don't do it in every city I go to now. I don't do it out of state, but <laughs> in New Orleans where I know the ground, you know, I love to put my feet on the ground and it, it makes you feel safe. I love seeing the birds. I love seeing those things happen outside of the window or even just when I'm just walking by, you see butterflies and you just remember that they're cycles. Nature will talk to you. Mm-hmm. You just got to listen. Yeah. And because I don't want to take up too much more of your time, I'll, I'll just ask you two more questions. Do you ever bring your kind of perception of nature and the way that you you work with food together? How do those two things work together? The same kind of respect I have to give fire and water. Or when I'm in, I told my daughter today in the pool, it was funny. I was going back and then my body started going this way. And I said, oh, the wind is blowing this way. You know, you just respect it. You say, well, I need to switch up and swim a different way because this is going to do nothing but take me into the side of the wall of the pool. So I have to gain control and go this way by respecting what the wind is doing to the water. The same thing with food, you know, even with the way I cook collars, like I said, respecting the integrity of it and bringing it to a place where people can still have nutrients from that thing. I still like collars and, and greens smothered down to what they be smothered down to sometimes, you know, it's the same thing with food. I have a great respect for cultures with food. You know, I said too. Again, there's an uptown gumbo, downtown gumbo. There's a my mama from here gumbo, from there, Lafayette. I don't know the places, but a New Orleans gumbo have a distinct taste and it's completely different. It's completely different. And you got to respect the gangster people culture. You know, in my next cookbook, I have different cultures in it, but not too, too heavy because I'm only doing this to honor you. I'm not trying to pirate. That's what I do with food. I like all sorts of food, but I'm not about to pirate anybody's culture because it's unfair. You know, like it's unfair. Like you have your 
not that you're bound to your own thing, but when it comes to representation, calm down, have respect. A lot of stuff, I'm just like, no, I mean, I want to eat it when you make it. And it's not that I'm against it. You know, I just feel a heavy respect. Like the same way I respect the elements is the same way I respect boundaries with cultures. There's a couple different things. And even with, even though I am African-American, there's only so many African dishes I'm going to do because that those people have their own thing too. No, I'm not about to make myself an authority in that environment. That's why I'm a, a food, one of the food authorities people's, people in New Orleans. I'm not going to go to Lafayette and say I'm a food authority of Louisiana like that. No, no, no. I, I just don't, I don't want to step on anybody's toes like that. So the same way I respect nature in that light, like I respect the elements, the same way I respect the table. Like, man, I'm not about to step on your, your track. That's your track to run on, not mine. I still want to eat from it, but I don't, you know, but you know, that's just the respect I hold for that. Yeah, for sure. Where can our audience go to support you? And also like, do you have any closing thoughts? You can support me on any social media platform, Toya Bodhi. And I have a YouTube channel that has a bunch of recipes on it too. So that's free recipes. You can go and grab in tutorials and stuff like that and information out and stuff. There's always the book. It's Cooking for the Culture. It's sold everywhere, literally. And I think my closing remarks is that I really want people to realize whatever's whatever they see in me and whatever they admire that that is in them. And there's something to be unlocked. There's something to be discovered, meaning removing the cover off of. That's what discovery is, removing the cover. I just would love people to just be in this unapologetically how I flow through life. I would love for you to find your way of being unapologetically you. You know, I hope that I encourage you to dig into that and be that and love yourself and respect the table, respect what your ancestors passed down to you. That's about it. Amazing. Thank you so much. No problem. No problem. Anytime. Thank you for tuning in to Tilling the Soil. For more information on the podcast or Whitney Plantation, go to WhitneyPlantation.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. All the handles can be found in the description. Thanks for listening.